Welcome to Conversations and Complexity. Today I'm really delighted to be joined by Pete Weijer, and uh, Pete is a scientist at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute, uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, but in particular he works in the Tammy Lettner uh, Center uh, with an interest in palliative care research. Welcome, Pete. Thanks, Ross. So going to start by asking you, uh, you've got one of the more unique backgrounds for a health researcher of anybody I've come across. And as someone who started in philosophy before he went into medicine, yep. you started in computer, computer science. science and yeah. mathematics. Tell me about your journey. Uh, as I think a lot of kids born in the 80s, uh, I kind of grew up around kind of the boom of, of computers and the internet uh, and being in everyone's home. So that, that was kind of like the, the thing that I wanted to do when I, when I became an adult, right? Do something with computers. Um, did my bachelor's and master's degrees in computer science. Um, when I was doing the master's degree, I um, started doing some work on sort of the psychology of software testing and found the psychology way more interesting than the computer part. Um, so then did a PhD in cognitive psychology. Um, and then during that, I realized that nobody's going to be interested in the little experiments that I was running one-on-one -on -one with people in these kind of very tightly controlled lab settings. Um, so I thought, well, if I want to get a job at some point, I need to do kind of more applied work. So I applied my decision-making uh, research to medical uh, decision-making and moved into uh, the healthcare space. How did you get from medical decision-making into palliative care? Uh, after I got my PhD, I was at the University of Missouri at their uh, medical decision research lab, and it, nothing there was uh, palliative care related. Um, the thing that actually moved me to palliative care was I had family members that went through uh, palliative care. I uh, lost my dad and my mother-in-law to cancer, and both had journeys through palliative care. So that was kind of the thing that got me really interested in that space, because in palliative, you're making tons of decisions about your your end-of-life care, but none of the, those decisions have a right answer, right? It's all sort of preference-sensitive choice for the mm -hmm. people, right? So how does someone make decisions about the end of their life when no one's ever experienced that um, and they're not physicians, right? They don't have the medical information that a doctor does. Um, so that was kind of the really interesting uh, kind of space that I wanted to get into, and luckily enough, I uh, managed to do it. Great. So. Our general interest here is uh, often talking about complex issues or complexity, yep. um, however defined. And medical decision-making, well, decision-making in general, it's got a wonderful history going back to, you know, Herbert Simon and the early yep. satisficing, you know, one of the pioneers in cybernetics. So they're all connected in together. Um, what do you think are the key sort of messages that you would like people to know about your research in terms of medical decision-making? Uh, it's an interesting one because decision-making in general is sort of, um, you know, a lot of people in the field up until kind of recently have believed that people are, make when they make decisions, they're quite rational. Um, but a lot of sort of the psychology and behavioral economics research um, has shown that's not really the case, right? Uh, people behave in kind of ways that aren't necessarily uh, quote-unquote rational um, from maybe the exterior, but um, are driven by things um, on the inside that people are, are, are sort of driving those, those perceived irrationalities. Um, so decision-making is kind of an interesting space because you can kind of do all kinds of interesting experiments in, in the space. In medicine, it came out of a background in sort of logic and reasoning. 
And the way logicians think about reasoning is very different from how computer scientists or they're, they're all related. But one of the things I found when I started reading the medical decision-making literature is they were really besotted with probability models yep. and partitioned trees. And picking up on something you were saying about your, the experience that drew you into palliative care, uncertainty in that existential sense, ambivalence, and is very poorly addressed. Yep. So I kept saying, where's the ambivalence operator in this model, yep. right? So you talk to the patient one day, they say X. You go back, as a, so clinically I know this, you go back the next day and they say not X. And you say, well, but I'm sorry, you have to hold you to your, your you know, our, our partition tree says that yep. you're going to be down here. So how do you think we can better model those kinds of ambivalences or lived experiences in decision-making? Yeah, that's a tough one because what was true yesterday isn't necessarily going to be true today. So the, you know, yesterday was X, today's not X may seem irrational from the outside, but something may have changed for that patient um, that suddenly X doesn't make any sense for them and they need to, to do not X now. Um, so I don't know if you can actually model all that stuff, but it does, it is important to um, have the sort of space in your mind of these decisions aren't permanent. They're not set in stone. Things will change throughout the course of a treatment um, or someone's health. So you kind of do your best in, in the time that you, that you have. Yeah. And then so this raises a really important question. So many people now are interested in predictive analytics, and yeah. I think more time and energy is being spent on predictive models with the advent of big data. Now, you're interested in and are engaged in a very interesting project called Homer, which is about predictions to a certain extent. Do you want to yeah. tell us a bit about Homer? Yeah, so Homer, Homer is an algorithm um, that was designed by Carl Wall Van Raven out of Ottawa. And it is essentially a model that takes regularly collected hospital data. It's mostly admitting and discharge data that every hospital collects regardless of, of who you are. And it kind of runs it through this magic box that spits out a number at the end, which is what's the probability that you're going to die in the next year. Um, and it's, it's remarkably accurate. Um, when my, my colleague James Downer, he, wrote, he read this paper and, and he got super excited as this could be used in a, in a predictive sense for palliative care. Because it wasn't designed for kind of predictive uh, capabilities, more kind of a retrospective kind of big data tool. But um, we can now use Homer as a spotlight for who might need palliative care. It's not perfect because Homer uh, focuses on mortality, which is not the same thing as needing palliative care, but there's a, there's a big overlap in those folks. Uh, yeah, there's a huge care gap as well. Yeah. So one of the things, uh, do, can you just walk us through some of the elements of Homer? So does it, it's, is it kind of disease agnostic? It doesn't really care about which, or does it assign weights to particular diseases? It, it collects a certain amount of data. There's, there's a few different flavors of Homer. Um, so depending on which one you implement, it's, it takes slightly different data. Um, in a, a lot of the stuff that we're doing now, we're using a variant that only uses admitting data. It doesn't take anything on discharge. So you could theoretically catch patients while they're still in the hospital. So it takes things like age, it takes sex, it takes who the admitting service uh, was. Um, but it doesn't take things like diagnosis. Uh -huh. um, so it doesn't, it doesn't really care what you were diagnosed with. Um, and, and some other things, like did you go directly to the ICU, where did you come from, you know, home or long-term care, things like that. 
Um, so it's just using, so it can, it can be used for everybody. And most of the patients that Homer flags are frailty, actually, yes. which is kind of a great, which is a great thing because, you know, in palliative care, most of the people that we're caring for aren't, are cancer patients. Yes. Um, you know, something like 80, almost 90% of cancer patients get palliative care, but maybe a third of uh, frail patients get receive palliative care. So there's a huge gap in um, who we care for in palliative care versus who, what Canadians die of. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited about this project because it's actually completely parallel to the line of research that I've been trying to do for 15 years from a primary care point of view. Yep. So I always would tell my residents that, you know, we'd have somebody who was older, had maybe six, seven chronic diseases, eight to 10 medications, and we'd spend an hour sorting them out, getting them into what I call equilibrium, which is their best functional and, you know, symptom control conditional on the various permutations of chronic disease they have. And I'd say, if I came in tomorrow and heard that this person died, I wouldn't be surprised. And nor would I be surprised if a year from now we were still trying to adjust because we just don't have the tools that tell us, well, regardless of whether they've got a, a predictable mortality score, they need a different, when they get to a certain point in time, you need a different kind of care. Yep. And there was a really good study, I think came out of Ottawa, which showed this care gap. But if you had a quote unquote palliative care diagnosis, you got palliative care, I think about six months, you were connected in, 80% were connected in, in a good period of time. Whereas these frailer, vulnerable people who aren't, they don't get, the penny doesn't drop until three weeks before yep. their death. Yep. And meanwhile, their caregivers themselves, they've been in and out of hospital. They're, they're just not getting the appropriate care. So I think this is a fabulous project. What else have you got on your plate that you would like to do? In the best of all possible worlds, what would you be working on? One of the other um, aspects of my work is uh, healthcare team collaboration. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm involved in a large uh, kind of project, which uh, is a tool for patient-provider collaboration. Because right now, if you're a complex patient, you're going to be seeing a lot of different uh, providers um, that don't necessarily talk to each other. No, they don't. Right? So in healthcare, you know, the sort of the quote-unquote teams, if you think about teams in healthcare, um, what kind of comes to mind might be um, the ER docs, right, uh, or an operating room that those people are a team. They work together. They kind of know um, how each other works. They have different roles, strengths, and weaknesses. But that's not most of the, quote-unquote, teams in healthcare. Um, most of the teams that you kind of encounter are these loosely coupled teams, right? They're, you know, one doctor at one hospital, one doctor somewhere else. And, and the only thing that links them is the patient. So the teams are distributed, which is problematic um, because that puts barriers to communication. The teams tend to be ad hoc. These people don't necessarily work together outside of that patient. And so it makes teamwork quite difficult. And with various in kind of institutional barriers, communication is, is difficult. So the project that I'm involved with is a, a platform called Loop, which is a patient provider tool. We get the patient, we get their caregiver, we get everyone involved in that patient's care onto a secure um, space and they can all communicate, and everyone sees everybody's messages. It's kind of sort of a, an open notes kind of approach. Um, nobody is kept out of the loop, as it were, and everyone kind of knows what's going on, and the patient can interact, um, the caregiver can interact, and you have 
kind of a, a, a setting for proper team-based collaboration. And how's that been going so far? It's been going really well. So I think there's a there's a ton of interest. We're we're doing a um, implementation study right now, um, where we're implementing it in six different sites: um, two at Sinai Health System, two at um, UHN, and two at SickKids. Hmm. And every every site has a different practice. The way that they um, run their operation is different everywhere. So. Um, but we're we're finding that we can kind of get loop implemented, and there's a ton of excitement for it. And these people are finding that this is a tool that's been missing, because it's difficult to communicate across hospitals. You know, you can either pick up the phone and hope that someone answers on the other end, or you can send an email out to the ether, which may or may not ever be replied to. But this is a tool that everyone can kind of see uh, what's going on, and there's sort of a diffusion of responsibility that if person X might not reply, but you know, someone else might. Well, this is great because it resonates with, again, uh, another project that uh, we've been working on for some time uh, and brought with us when we came from Sunnybrook to uh, Bridgepoint. So we recognized that for many of the complex older adults, you needed a team-based approach. And there's a lot of discussions about, oh, we need to be interprofessional, we need to have interprofessional teams, uh, but nobody had ever custom-built teams. So yep. we said, who are the skills exactly? Who do we need around the table? So we got a grant, and we brought everybody around the table, never worked as a team before. Right. And over a series of three or four grants, we actually refined a team-based model. And uh, there's a fellow, David Ryan, up at the Regional Geriatric Program who has a a score, uh, actually, uh, he's a, like yourself, a research psychologist, uh, but he's developed a tool for a uh, function of interprofessional teams, and we were actually able to show that we were uh, capable of scoring above the norms. So one of the problems, uh, I think, with team-based approaches is that we don't teach teams in any of the cognate disciplines. Yeah. So uh, we teach leadership. Yeah. So how do you think we can get better at uh, fostering team-based approaches in education? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, because kind of the, the team thing is really difficult. And it's, it's, I think it's an area that healthcare is going to have to get a lot better at. Um, you know, kind of the epidemic of complex care is here, right? Yes. You know, something like 25% uh, of patients represents like 60% of all healthcare costs, right? You need to be able to communicate with the other providers involved in a patient's care. Yeah. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of kind of institutional barriers as well. Um, Carol Orchard is a brilliant researcher from Western who, who does this phenomenal stuff around teams um, and has identified various kind of barriers and, and facilitators for, for, for good healthcare team collaboration. Um, but, you know, one example is, is you know, um, just the, the power structure in some situations is problematic. You know, a nurse might not necessarily want to speak up against a physician, but um, may need to, right, for, for, for good patient care. And that's not taught well at all yeah. in any kind of, in any kind of, um, in any kind of stage of, of anybody's training is that you need to be able to uh, communicate and interact without sort of these, these barriers there. Yeah. I completely agree. We found uh, that the underdetermination of knowledge to manage particularly complex patients means that nobody actually knows. Yeah. So 
my joke used to be there's like seven guidelines for this patient, which one is going to be the disease and which is going to be the comorbidity. So you get to this point where you transcend the relevance of the particular guideline to that patient. And then you're in this honest space where the physician can't confidently say this is the right thing to do, nor can the nurse, nor can the physio. Uh, sometimes it might be the social worker because of her relational skills that has the magic way to move forward. But I think you're absolutely correct. We're on the verge of a new horizon where team-based approaches are going to have to predominate, but we're going to have to custom design them. We will. Uh, I think there's, there's nothing existent that will do this for us. And I, but I am ho quite hopeful. There's been a tremendous kind of response when we've been doing this work and, and, and kind of work like it. People want this kind, these kinds of tools. They want to do this kind of work. Um, they want to be... Uh, collaborative. They want to work as a team, but no, they don't really know how yet. Yeah. Um, the enthusiasm is there. I think we'll, we'll get there with, with all the other stuff. Well, it's fascinating. So someone who starts in computer science uh, finds himself at the intersection of all of the most important strands and pressures in the healthcare system. So the Homer Project and the Loop Project are actually critical priorities. So thank you for sharing your expertise with us, and uh, I look forward to collaborating with you in the future. This has been a great conversation. Thanks very much, Ross. Oh, you're welcome. Cheers. Thank you.